Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is the where to go story with my friend Steve Denton. How's it going, Steve? I'm doing good, Joe. It's good to good to talk to you today and thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate having you on the show. So please introduce yourself and your company and where you're at today. Sure. So my name is Steve Denton. I'm the CEO of where to go We're a UPS company, and we are based uh, right here in beautiful Buckhead. I'm new to this area, but I understand that's part of Atlanta, but we are in the Buckhead section of Atlanta in uh, Piedmont Tower. So that's where we're located. Very nice. So where are you from originally? So originally I'm, I'm from this really tiny town in West Virginia with like not a lot of people, but my dad was in the military, grew up all over the place and I moved here. Um, I did Professionally, I did 24 years of my career in New York City and, and then spent the last couple of years in Santa Barbara, California and moved here when I took on the CEO role at where to go and, and convinced my wife to uh, move from beautiful, sunny Santa Barbara, California here to Atlanta. And we moved here like right, in the, right before the pandemic started. So will you, will you ever be able to drag her back to the cold? <laughs> no, that's never going to happen. In fact, part part. Part of the deal, right? Part of the deal of me convincing my wife to come here. And we love Atlanta, by the way. Um, I just don't know if we've experienced it properly because we've only lived here during the pandemic. But but part of the deal was I, I let her go two months a year back to California. So it's a trade out. So those are the two months I get a lot of work done. <laughs> so before we get into this topic today, tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? You said you grew up in West Virginia. What kind of kid were you? Did you play sports? You, you work a lot? Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I was the oldest of two. I got two brothers, so I was the oldest, and we we're all, you know, like 18 months apart, right? So, you know, you got three boys, pretty similar age, fight a lot. My dad was in the military, so he was gone quite a bit. Back in those days, you know, we had various conflicts going on, and, uh, you know, globally. And uh, my dad was gone a decent amount, so my mom raised us quite a bit while my dad was gone. And <clears throat> and we moved around quite a bit because he was in the military. So I did play sports. I played high school sports. I played college sports. Oh, what'd you play? I played baseball and then uh, soccer and, nice. and a golfer. But yeah, I wouldn't say I was particularly great at any of them. But I learned, you learned to grind. You, right, you learned, learned to win. To yeah. Well, yeah, probably should have won more. Um, we but, learn to lose too. <laughs> right. But no, we grew up all over the place. And I think what that taught me was just, uh, it taught me to appreciate different cultures across the globe. It, it taught me to appreciate different types of folks with different types of backgrounds and embrace that. And then at the same time, you know, when you go to five different high schools, you're the new kid five times. And, yeah. and you know, that experience of walking out in that cafeteria with your lunch tray and not knowing a soul and trying to figure out where you're going to sit. Yeah, I had that happen five times in high school. And what you learn to do is really you become a pretty good judge of character and 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 how to reduce tension and build trust pretty quickly. And I don't, it's not manipulated. It's just a skill you pick up because you got to make friends fast, or else tough things could happen to you. You know, it's it's interesting. My sister and her family's moved around to like China, two places, Brazil, Mexico, and and I always say that. Um, they have a son who's lived in all these different places, and he's adapted very well, and his parents have helped that along. Uh, you know, every once in a while, you'll see somebody who's very troubled and will say, you know, we moved, my dad was an army guy, and we moved, and it's a challenge. And others seem to do well in it, and maybe it's the way they're they're made up, and maybe it's the, the parents, but it can make or break you, I think. Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, it was... Uh... It's interesting because you learn a lot, but the other, but the downside of that is your your accountability for your actions and your friendships that you, you don't know people or travel with the same people your whole life, right? Like it's not like I don't have any friends that I went to first grade with, right? Because right. I don't even remember where I was in the first grade. It was like twenty moves ago. So um, <laughs> the accountability for your actions, right? Because you're so transient could be the troubling part. So I think for me, what was really great was I had great parents. And when I went to college, I went to a very small school in West Virginia. And it was the first time that like I was with the same group of humans 
for four consecutive years. <laughs> so what school? Uh, a little small school called Shepherd University. It was Shepherd College at the time. Ranked number 19 in Division II football. We got a great football program All there. Right. About, about, right. About 3,000 students. 1,000 of them live on campus. Other than another 2,000 commute in. But I think for me, that was really grounding and, and, and it helped me become more accountable for my actions and my friendships and the relationships that I built. And that, because that was the shift. And, and for right, me, I credit, right. I, credit, I credit that for really changing myself like, and, and my level of accountability. Nice, nice. So I looked at your LinkedIn profile before we talked, and you have got a lot of jobs, and mostly senior management jobs, it seems. So right. w- without taking the rest of our hour, give us the, the thumbnail of, right. of your career. Well, the good, you know, it, it looks like a lot of jobs, but I've only worked for a couple of companies, right? And maybe it's the promotions. <laughs> yeah, or the acquisitions, right? So, so I, I would chunk my career up really into three buckets. First part of my career, big company, right? I, I went to work for Pepsi Cola right out of college. I was fortunate enough to get that job. And a little known fact, I was my very first boss. I was so fortunate and so lucky that my first boss, a guy named Chris Furman, and he's a 27-year-old guy out of Philadelphia. I'm a 22-year-old kid out of West Virginia. He's my first boss. I got to see, Joe, what good looked like before we were actually using terms like what good looked like. And I was for, <laughs> I was just lucky that he was my first boss. And that guy went on to become the president of Pepsi-Cola oh, wow. USA. And now he's the CEO of Ventura Foods. So I got to work for someone really special, very first job. And I got to see behavior and, and actions and accountability and inspiration before we were using words like that. Like I just saw that and I was lucky, right? That is luck that I right. had an opportunities. But I did a, I did three to four years at Pepsi with a variety of jobs moving up the food chain. Were you sales or ops or what? And, well, it, it sales and ops are kind of the same thing at Pepsi, right? Like I had, my first job was I had a group of stores. I had seven chain stores down in Southern Virginia. I, my territory was like Norfolk and Virginia Beach. And, and that was like another move, right? I moved to an area of the country that I'd never been to, but I didn't, I didn't care. It was a was military sure. town. You got it. Right. right. I was like, <laughs> all right, I got this one. But I had like eight stores I was responsible for and they were chain stores. So they were sold at the national account level, but I, I maintained the local relationship, which at that level, you're really ordering the product and you're merchandising the product, but you're learning how things move and you're learning how the business works. You're making relationships with the receiving managers in the back because the reality of it is it's hard to influence the front of the store when it's a national account, but you can really influence the storage area in the back if you make great relationships with the receiving managers. But I'll tell you a quick story. Something that I did early in my career, and I learned a lesson, like I, I didn't think I was any better than the other account managers, right? Like, I don't know how I could do that job better. So I had to figure out how to do it different. And and this this decision and this action set me up for the next three promotions in my career. It kind of got me moving was... You know, when I would when I would merchandise these stores, it didn't matter how early I started. Somebody was first, somebody was last, right? And and it took a long time to do it because you got people in the store asking you like where certain things are. Like all of a sudden you're a store employee, you're fighting with the other vendors for carts <laughs> and things like that. And and whoever you service first is really happy, but whoever you service last or second to last, they're really bad. So I had to figure out a different way to do it. And I was four down. I was I was single. I, was, I didn't know anyone down there. My stores were twenty four seven stores or they had stock people in there at night. And I just shifted my schedule and talked to my store managers and said, hey, would you mind if I work these stores at night? And I just shifted my <laughs> schedule and I would start my day at 10 o'clock at night and I would be able to work those eight stores in half the time, no traffic, no one's in the stores. I'd probably be done by two, three o'clock in the morning. I'd go home. I'd sleep for about five hours. I'd get up, I'd talk to my boss, and then I'd put on a suit, Joe, and I'd go into these <laughs> stores and and all of my store managers were happy because when they walked in in the morning and they walked their store, the Pepsi right. section <laughs> was totally built out and clean and faced out and the Coke section was blown out. And then when I came in there, I wasn't some guy wearing like some, some soda stain, you know, recycled right. two liter bottle pants and looking like I would, I came in there and they knew I was taking care of them and they started taking care of me and my sales started going through the roof. And it wasn't because I was doing anything better. I was just doing it different, right? I changed the game <laughs> and that drove my numbers to, by the time I was 23, I got promoted to a district sales manager 
manage a team of 10 people. And I was the youngest district sales manager in the company. It wasn't Joe because I was so great at merchandising and selling. Right. I just did it different to solve the right. problems of my, of my clients in a way that no other people weren't doing it right. in my field at the time. You know, it's interesting. I, I say when I'm not young anymore, but I remember being young. And one of the problems with being young is when they say follow the process, you follow the process. And even if you see a better way, you usually don't have the guts to say, I think we could do it better. That, that, that's right. that's my experience is, and, and I can say this. I told my kids this the other day. My first job, my first jobs were with guys who fought in World War II, mm-hmm. and then eventually Korea, and eventually Vietnam, right. and right. they they were from a different era, and they were they uh, they were used to an authority figure knowing everything, and you just do what you're told, you follow the process, sure. follow the procedures, and, I, and we never felt particularly empowered. And I always tell people who are young now, when I used to manage a three PL. It's your job to make the process, and it's also your job to make it to change it, to keep improving it. Right, it's different thought process, but you had that you had that the balls to do that. <laughs> well, I just had to find a better way, right? Because it wasn't working for me, it wasn't working for my numbers, and I needed to find a different way. And you also had a boss who was open to it. Yeah, well, it worked out for him too, right? So, but but to close the you know to go to the career, I, I did I did literally my first twelve years of work in big companies, Pepsi. And then I went to a company called RPS, which became FedEx Ground, and yep. I worked my worked my way there through from sales to sales leadership to region management. And when FedEx bought us, I had just won Region of the Year with a great team. I had taken the New York region, again, a region that was struggling, and and it needed some help, and we needed to find a different way to solve some problems up there. And we did, and we won Region of the Year, and then FedEx bought us, and that put me in a position to become a director. So that's when I became the director of sales for the Northeast for FedEx. And I was 32 at the time. And I was the youngest director in the company, had a big remit, carrying about a billion dollar quota. And I had New York and New Jersey and the Northeast. And and I started seeing all of these, what we called internet packages going through the system, right? And this is like 1999, (laughs) 2000. And I'm seeing this, I'm seeing this boom of a different type of package coming through the network. And I was coming back from Memphis. Was it bigger or bigger or what, what, what was the difference? How did you kind of differentiate it as different? It was, well, you started to see there were two things. Like before that, you know, most of the transportation was B2B, right? right. The, the only people doing B2C were catalogers. And, and that's why, right. candidly, catalogers were the very first folks to embrace and succeed on the internet because yeah. they knew how to <laughs> ship onesie twosies to people's homes and they had the infrastructure to do it the call centers right the customer support and the supply chain everybody yeah, sears, else sears roebuck was the original amazon right right <laughs> right they just missed the boat along the way on a couple of things right they didn't challenge the status quo and but anyway I was, I was long story short i was coming back from um, a meeting in memphis i think i was down there to, uh, for a golf tournament that we were sponsoring and I was sitting next to a young lady on a plane and she saw my FedEx bag tag and she asked me the question, now you work for FedEx, which I always think is an interesting question. Like when people had those bag tags on their, their plastic right. Dell laptop bags, I mean, it was pleather, not plastic. And <laughs> it's like, no, I'm just a fanboy, but of course I work there. Right. So, but she, and I talked to her and I told her what I did. And then I asked her what she did. And she told me about this company her and her brother had started and it, and, and that she explained it to me. It was like commission-based sales on the internet. And we know that today to be affiliate marketing or performance-based marketing. But back then, that didn't exist. The only kind of internet advertising you did was uh, portal deals is what they were called. And this concept was fascinating to me, this commission-based sales force online. And I was at a stage in my life where things were really good, but I just, I didn't want to be in the machine my whole life. And I wanted to, honestly, this is going to sound fairly conceited. I wanted to see if I was as good as I thought I was, right? And, 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 or was I just a product of the machine? And because I have a good wife who believes in me, they, uh, anyway, the closest story up, this young lady I met, her and her brother wanted to talk to me. I took the meeting. Their names are Steven and Heidi Messer. They're amazing entrepreneurs. They're my dear friends. Long story short, I left FedEx to go join them for this company called LinkShare, which was nascent and early and a risk. And I had a one-year-old and a two-year-old, but I had a supportive spouse who said, look, we're in New York City. You've worked for Pepsi and FedEx. You've achieved pretty 
decent level senior roles. If it doesn't work out, you can get another job. We're in, we're in the best city in the planet to get a job. Right. So do it. And we stepped out and we did it. And man, that was an eye opener because now I'm an entrepreneur. And now I don't have three secretaries and a couple offices. <laughs> you don't have that deep bench that FedEx and Pepsi had either. <laughs> I don't have a deep bench. I don't have a ton of resources, but I'm working with really, I'm working with some of the most talented people that I've ever been around in my life who are purpose driven, mission driven, very clear on what we're trying to do and, and fighting for it every day because you're fighting every day right. and and disrupting an industry and that was fascinating and we almost went out of business because the internet blew up in a bad way in 2000 and yeah, things started crashing <laughs> and i remember we almost didn't make payroll like memorial day weekend 2001 and we had to do a bunch of layoffs and that was what, hard what were you guys selling performance-based marketing so basically we were aggregating thousands of websites that were small to medium-sized websites online had a common technology platform and then we let merchants like Walmart and Disney and folks like that and Target use these sites to advertise. If someone clicked through and bought something, they earned a commission. So it's performance. Okay. The, the, con, the model itself is still the model there. that sparked. Absolutely. It's, it's, one, it's, it's still 15 to 20% of all e US e-commerce is going through performance-based affiliate links. And candidly, Joe, Paid search, the tracking mechanisms for that came out of that industry. It's the same concept. So anyway, we had some bumps. We, we stayed with it. We made it through. We ended up making a $16 profit a couple of months later. We went forward and we sold that company. To, we sold that company to Rakuten in 2005. Oh, wow. Yeah. They're advertising a lot all of a sudden. Well, we were their very first acquisition outside of Japan. So we sold that company to them for about half a billion dollars. I got a chance then to become the CEO of Rakuten USA and Linkshare. And that's where I got to become a CEO and start acquiring companies. And again, I'm owned by Rakuten, right? Which is a Japanese giant, right? They got 35 businesses in Japan. It's an amazing ecosystem. I mean, they own a major league baseball team, right? All but we right. Were first, <laughs> right. So, so we were their first acquisition and, and it was, it was, I got to do international. So it was game changing for me. And then that kicked me off on a 20 year career in digital, right? In e-commerce. And I went to GSI after I was done with Rakuten, uh, with Michael Rubin, who now owns Fanatics and you oh. see Michael. Yep. So Michael had a company called GSI. He wanted to build a, a digital platform to drive demand to these e-commerce carts that they hosted. So we started GSI Media. I stitched together a couple of companies there. We sold that to eBay. So I stayed on board with eBay and I started running eBay Enterprise Marketing Solutions and stitching together a bunch of e-commerce platforms there. And I, you know, that that was my so it looks like a lot of jobs, but it's just because we built companies and sold them to bigger companies, right? And I stuck around versus leaving. So I did 20 some years there in e-commerce. And then frankly, at, at the back half of my career here, you know, I wanted to do something. And when I got the call from UPS about where to go, because they were incubating this business and they had gotten it to a point where they needed a CEO because it's a separate company. For me, it combined, you know, the things that I had done in my career, supply chain and e-commerce. And then on the personal side, the personal meaning for me is I feel like that digital landscape where, where merchants of all sizes can compete for sales is pretty level. Now, granted, Joe, it's different budgets, right? Right. Enter right. Enterprise has more money, different budgets, but access is there. I spent 20 years of my career working with great people at great companies to level that playing field, whether it's email or search or social or affiliate. Right. It's level. Access is there. But on the supply chain, it's not level, right? right. Enterprise has the benefit of a footprint to be able to offer the things that SMBs cannot. Right. And I just saw it as a personal opportunity to, to just finish the job and, and work with some great people and do some great things and level that commerce landscape once and for all from the beginning to the end. And that's why we're doing it in supply chain. So there's a very long story on my career, but hopefully it puts it in context. Yeah, no, it definitely does. Definitely does. So you've said something interesting there. You said UPS incubated this. So you're the first CEO there, right? Yeah, I am. Yeah. So what do you mean incubated? How did UPS, how did they create where to go and why did they create it where to go? So as someone who's worked at big companies and then sold small companies to big companies, <laughs> 
big you companies lived on both sides of the street <laughs> yeah but i always end up there right so you know what's what is it from the godfather as much as i want out they keep bringing me back in or something like that I, it's a terrible impression but big companies are great and you get trained they're amazing places to, to for, for for all kinds of things and they do so much good innovation is challenging in big companies not because right. there aren't smart people there it's just when you're running a billion dollar segment or a $500 million segment, it is really hard for you as right. a leader to pay attention to this, this seedling that is, uh, right. has opportunity, right? And then you got resource constraints in the sense that technology resources right. are associated with like what feeds you, right? So UPS has like many big companies, this concept of, of, of concept to code where you invite employees to submit ideas for innovation. Um, at eBay, we would do patent searches for people because we wanted to build up that IP. I mean, very similar programs all over the place um, in big companies. It's good practice. Well, a bunch of ideas got surfaced and this concept of code. Two of them got through that said, hey, these are pretty good ideas. And they threw a couple million dollars at it, put some consultants and some UPS employees on it and said, hey, look, go Go to Santa Monica, California, get away from here for like three months, go see what you can do, build a business. And they came back with this thing and it was, they said, yeah, let's fund that, but let's do it smartly. Let's not put it in the ecosystem because this is gonna be a money loser. It's going to not generate a lot of revenue early on. We don't want a VP or an EVP like this become their hobby. Right. right, right. You're never going to grow. It, it's it's like hobby. career suicide, almost. Like, hey, we come out of this very successful, booming, <laughs> booming UPS business and go run something that might lose money and <laughs> see how that right. helps and your it, career. <laughs> and it is going to lose money, right? And and it's going to be a distraction for someone who's trying to run a billion dollar or a five billion dollar part of the business. That's a distraction for them. And so UPS made a really smart decision. They set it up as a separate company. They set it up with a separate board. And they brought in some outside money from Boston Consulting Digital Ventures. So it wasn't just a UPS lens, right? It was a separate company, but they own enough of it that it's a UPS company. And, and the thing got peddling and first year out, it did all the things. And then I joined early 2000 and, and here we are, right? So we're three years old. So what is the, what is the problem that they're trying to solve? What is the hole in the market that they saw? what we solve here, because it's not they, right? It's, I can't talk about us as they, right? It's we, yeah. right? Yeah. So the problem we solve is this. If you think about today's connected consumer, think about how you shop. You expect access to the world's inventory. Yep. You, ex you expect price transparency. You expect a personalized experience. You expect that delivered to you tomorrow or the next day, and you're not going to pay for it. And you expect a seamless return experience. Yeah. Right. I, want, I want kind of the Amazon experience that everyone else has to kind of buck up to now, right? Well, right, because, you know, with 38% of all U.S. e-commerce being generated on Amazon, like, that's the <laughs> that, Is it that high? So they Absolutely. set a very high bar for that experience. And yeah. your point is, if I'm competing against Amazon, how do I get to that same level? How do I, how do I compete with them? Because, again, the expectation's there. As the consumer, that is my experience. I don't consider myself just an Amazon consumer. I'm a consumer, right? right? right. I'm a consumer. So that's where well, I a lot of the stuff I buy now isn't on Amazon, but I, I'm used to that experience. Right. And if you can't provide an experience similar to that, you very well may not be in my consideration set. So the problem we solve here at where to go is for merchants who want to have a diversified footprint across the country and be able to offer their customers one to two day ground shipping anywhere in the country and do it in, in warehouses on an on-demand basis, right? So our model is very much like Uber or Airbnb, right? You, we, we have 50 warehouses across the country that we don't own, they're certified. They have different capacity. People say, why 50, Steve? And I'm like, well, some warehouses are cold chain, right? And that is what the market the merchant needs. Some warehouses are good at big and bulky. Some warehouses are great at small pack e-commerce. Some are temp control. And you've got different you've got different capabilities. You've got different capacity. And footprint is just one of the of the gating factors. So we've built this network of amazing partners out there across the country. We've threaded them together with one common technology platform. So nice. if you're a merchant, yeah. So if you're a merchant, 
you have access to a nationwide footprint of warehouses and a technology tool that's already integrated that gives you inventory visibility, it gives you demand forecasting, it's connected to your e-commerce cart, your ERP, your point of sale if you have a store, and those orders will flow into our distributed order management system. We route it to the warehouses that have the inventory closest to the consumer, and we handle that for you. So if you're an entrepreneur or a business and you're good at selling and marketing, and service, but you're probably not great at supply chain, business intelligence, or business insights because either you can't afford it or you just right. don't have access to the resources. We fill that gap so you can sell digitally, sell, and compete in a way that meets the needs of today's connected consumer. Right. And you think about somebody who you know, might start an online store, maybe they've done it 10 years ago, and they keep growing this online store or an online brand, whatever it might be. They are good at probably marketing. They're very good at technology. They're good at driving traffic and writing content yeah. and, and creating that wonderful digital experience. But where it gets ugly for many of them is when somebody says, yeah, I want to buy this. <laughs> and then they go, yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're managing that out of uh, one location in Indiana. And the expectation, to your point, is same day, next day. And right. you go, oh, boy. I maybe need to do something a little different here because well, the the mom and, and I think most warehouses are are owned by one guy. I mean, I, I, wrong way to say it. I think the majority of uh, warehouses are one location. I think you used to see a lot of that, right? And you're right about the, the most people start, they got, like most of these entrepreneurs start, they're shipping out of their garage, they're shipping out of their basement, right? right? They got a public storage facility. Then it's they get big strength. enough, right? <laughs> then they have a little warehouse, right? Attached to wherever they do where their office is and, and they grow. And depending on where you are, right? You, you, you got offered today. How do you do that without upgrading the air? You don't have the margins to support that, but I'll tell you where this really matters. And I'll give you a statistic that, that will blow your mind a little bit. So uh, we did a survey where we surveyed thousands and thousands of consumers around just their shopping habits and shopping behaviors. 65% of the consumers that we surveyed reported that that they did business, they've done business during the pandemic with a brand they'd never done business with before. They'd shopped from a merchant, a retailer, or a branded manufacturer, from someone they'd never done business with before. And you think about all these new opportunities that sellers are having to engage with new consumers. And your digital experience or your sales experience could be flawless. But if, yep. you don't if you don't execute on the supply chain and you don't get it to them in the time, you don't, it starts with having the inventory available. So you got to have good lens on your inventory, yeah. right? Two, you know, having that thing ship the, the day of the drop, <laughs> right. if it's by three o'clock or the next day, and then closing the loop with the consumer saying, hey, Joe, congratulations, you're, you know, your shoes are on the way, right? Here's the right. tracking number. And then having that in your hands in two days. And then if you don't like it, giving you a seamless, easy return experience. If that falls apart, then that engagement is one and done. And you don't get the lifetime value and right. lost out on a golden opportunity because you failed on the supply chain side. Yeah, and it's it, it's interesting you should say that because we we mentioned Amazon and is at thirty eight percent. I didn't realize they were responsible. Of they probably were responsible. Yeah. That's crazy. But we also know that big brands, I think Nike, Allbirds, companies like that, are saying, you know what, we want we don't want this to be an Amazon experience. We want the direct relationship with our customer. So they are off the Amazon platform, I think. And I think smaller companies that have traditionally said, hey. This is the greatest game in town. The bar has gotten higher to work with Amazon. So some people are no longer, they might have great businesses, but they're no longer a good fit for Amazon because the bar just keeps getting higher and higher for how they want to treat their sellers. So, so there's got to be a lot of people saying, I want to get out and I want to have that direct consumer experience. If I'm, if I'm out of the Amazon ecosystem, how do I do it? And well, why, you, why do you got to choose? But why do you got to choose? Not to cut you off, but why do you have to choose? Like, like if you have an effective supply chain, you don't have to make right. that choice, right? No, no, you can right. do both, right? You, you should do, do both. both. You have to do both. You have to do both. Right. You don't have a choice. Right. 
Yeah, right. so you might they might have gotten a little spoiled by that experience, and now they when they're left to their own devices, say, "How do I make this happen?" And again, these are guys who probably are exceptional at online, but that's not where that that's and so now they're in that that if if they have to build their own ecosystem, that's tough. They don't want to do right. that. <laughs> well, and they shouldn't do it, right? You shouldn't. Right. I mean, invest in what you're good at. Right, you shouldn't do it. You can. The clients we work with, so that the reason I interrupted you on that is like right. I always tell people say, do you compete with Amazon? I'm like, no. I mean, we we both offer similar, we right. both offer services to help, but here's the deal. We, I don't compete with them. I actually enable my clients to sell on Amazon and do it well because they can right. have that SFP badge. And if they're using Fulfilled by Amazon for that, they're going to want to drive a similar experience for their direct navigation and their other marketplaces. And we provide that. So, so I don't think you have to choose. I mean, right. whatever you think about your business, but as a, you should not be spending your capital tying it up in long-term leases. You should not be tying your capital up in owning buildings and staffing labor. Because here's the other trick. <laughs> With the shift in the pandemic from B to B to B to C, which a lot of that B2C now is just B2B of people working out of their homes. Right. So I always say you're, you're B2E, right? You're business to everyone, right? You need to be <laughs> I love that. set up, right? You're, you're B2E and you need a supply chain because that was the big thing. A B2B supply chain is set up a lot different than a B2C supply chain, right? You're right. B2B, it's, it's LTL, it's pallets, it's full case, right? Yeah, you're, trying to, con- you're happens- trying to consolidate to full trucks and yeah, <laughs> it's a whole different right. animal. So last year when the pandemic hit and everything shifted, not only did they have to shift the way they sold, they had to shift their supply chains. And because of our network, we were able to make that pivot. But the the other part of that that is equally important is, you know, on these digital sales channels, it's so easy now to set them up that if you don't understand your unit economics, you can sell your way right into bankruptcy. And the critical part of that is is your fixed cost. And with the shift to e-commerce, and we're seeing now 55 to 60% of the entire weekly volume is on Monday, Tuesday. Because Monday is the weekend orders that came in. So right. you think about, it's hard enough to staff labor now in, in, in just, it's hard enough to get labor. Now think about the flexibility of I need almost double the people on Monday and Tuesday that I need on Thursday and Friday. So how am I going to oh. staff for that? Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're, you need you, operational. You, you need operational expertise, and it's again probably not well within your warehouse. So right. let me ask a question, Steve, just to kind of figure myself out here. So let's just say I'm here in Michigan and I want to sell some sort of automotive aftermarket thing, and I've been mm-hmm. doing it out of a facility in Indiana. And I'm two day to, or one day to 65% of the population, and I'm two days to most of the rest, right? Right. And right. but now somebody says, "Hey, Joe, this this is we're in a same day, next day world." And I say, "Oh, geez. Right. So do I have to find somebody in in California and set up a similar operation? Which I know how much that almost killed me setting up the first one. Now I got to right. do that again. And then somebody says, "Well, you know, Texas is growing too," <laughs> and so all of a sudden, I find myself wanting to be same day, next day. Well, I'll say same day in every NFL city. And okay. I'm in that weird position. Uh, the, maybe the warehousing guys who I'm working with are great. But yeah. what can they do for me? They're not going to expand for just me across the whole country. And that's right. what you guys can do for me. I could call you and you say, yeah, we're, we're same day in every NFL city. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Let me caveat that, right? Let me caveat it with two things. So, yes, we could actually help you with that. Like I was going to say, look, we—that's what we do, right? Like we, mm-hmm. we, we would analyze we, and we do it all through artificial intelligence and machine learning. Like we analyze your historical sales, we analyze and put predicted demand against your future sales. If you have a promo calendar, we build that in to say, hey, Joe, here's what you have today. And here's what it could look like if you went into, say, these two warehouses, right? And this is what it would do to your transportation costs. Here's what it would do to your sales. And we do all that for you. And because we have this network, we would set you up. So you could keep your warehouse in Indiana. Right. And we could augment that and stitch it all together on one technology platform for you. The question that I would have to ask you, 
is how much inventory are you willing to carry, right? Because right. if you want to have inventory in every NFL city, so let's well, just growing. call that. <laughs> yeah, you're growing, but but how much inventory are you, how many? Because you got to carry a lot of inventory and and a lot of a lot right. of rep- a lot of duplicates of your SKUs if you you want to have it spread properly to where you can meet that demand. So where the rubber hits the road is the trade out between inventory carry cost and how right. diversified a footprint you want. And what right. we find most merchants, most sellers, if you're in a three warehouse footprint, in fact, we have a footprint today of 12 warehouses that are SFP warehouses that work on Saturdays. Wait, what if is we SFP? Can, Seller fulfilled prime. So meeting okay. the needs to maintain a prime badge, but doing it on your own, right? Mm-hmm. Which yep. which means we, weekends matter. And um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's another reason why you don't want to do it yourself. Because if, in my model, you aggregate with other merchants. So it makes it worthwhile to bring a staff in on Saturday. And you're paying fractional labor. But the uh, we if I can put you in three warehouses across the country, mm-hmm. like Edison, New Jersey, or Allentown, Pennsylvania, or Philadelphia, yep. and then put you somewhere in like Dallas or Kansas City, and then put you somewhere like Reno or Ontario, California. Right, you're gonna get you're gonna get overnight coverage to the major metropolitan right. areas, and you're gonna get two day to about ninety nine point six percent of the U.S. population. Well, well, I think what you 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 just did there was point out that you need you need supply chain expertise when somebody asks you about your inventory you know you're talking to the right person because inventory is everything so if i say hey i'm very ambitious and i want to put inventory everywhere you go hey dude you're gonna go broke first (laughs) so let's slow down when you're ready to go to the fourth location we'll help you if you need it but we're not going to help you do something that's going to you know so you guys can actually do some analysis for them and give them some advice which is fantastic Absolutely. And the last thing on inventory, and this is and this is for your listeners, the other thing that your supply chain or commerce partner should be talking to you about is fencing your inventory. Because what do you mean fencing, so fencing your inventory is, let's say you've got 100 items available, Joe, and you're selling mm-hmm. on Amazon and eBay and maybe you're selling on Wayfair, right? But you also have these direct relationships with your customers that are on your email list. Right. So you've got your email list. You're doing your own marketing through your own marketing efforts to do direct navigation. If you don't fence your inventory and say, look, I'm going to make, so I got a hundred units. So I'm going to make 30 available here in Amazon. I'm only going to make 10 available here at eBay. I'm going to make 10 here. If you don't fence the availability of your inventory by sales channel, you could barely likely see one channel just blow you out and it might not be your best margin channel. And I've seen this play out time and time again. People don't fence their inventory. They have a great sale somewhere. They blow it out. And then, <laughs> you know, a, a, a customer that might be paying a higher price, that's a lower cost to acquire because you're already doing business with them, shows up on your site to buy a medium shirt. Because it's very hard to get a medium shirt these days. I mean, they don't seem to exist because of the supply chain shortage in the country. And I think because a lot of us got fat, that's what I'm well, Right, so nobody's so, making them anymore. But You can't be medium. <laughs> right. But that is such an unrewarding experience for your customer right. that you have a relationship with. And it could have been avoided if you fenced your inventory. Right. And the nice thing about it is if you use the right technology to do it, it's dynamic. And you can right. change it every day. Right. Some people just, they just go, I got 100 SKUs. Every, you know, get after it until they're gone, and and that's gonna gonna drive some outcomes. The unintended consequences there are are are, are higher cost to acquire and right. less long time. Uh, so that's a lesson a lot of people need to learn. Right, and you know, I'll tell. I'm gonna. T- I'm, I'm I'm old, so I can tell these pre-internet stories. But one of the things that um, I'm in from I'm in Michigan, and Kmart was a, our. We had this Kmart for a long time. We never had WalMarts, sure. and Walmart sure. was down south. It was doing well. We heard about it, but we never had one. Kmart always had these blue light specials. So they, they would have these specials and every you go, oh my God, look at I can get an umbrella for two dollars, right? So you run by that. Walmart always said always low prices. Every day we're gonna be the same price. Walmart really worried about their inventory and they could start to plan it. And they say, you know, every March 17th, we sell four thousand umbrellas across the nation. 
Kmart could never tell you that because they had these blue light specials that would blow out all the inventory. And the challenge became they they were bad with inventory. They had excess right. inventory that they had to sell at discount. Walmart never found themselves in that trick bag. And the same applies as we move online, right? You did you mentioned the fencing. We got to take care of it. So, right. So basically, you can help me as a, as I grow, you can help me wherever I should need to grow and it's a technology platform. And now let me ask from the warehousing perspective. So are these warehousing companies that you reach out to, are they saying, hey, cool, incremental business, we love it, bring it? Yeah, I mean, it was, yes. When we started the business, yes, a lot more, right? I mean, things have changed a little bit, right? Like, I mean, if you're a warehouse operator, like the last two years of your life have been pretty good. I mean, <laughs> you've, 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 like, you've, you've moved from one status in the high school to a new status in the high school, right? Like popular kids, hundred <laughs> percent. You're running with a new crowd. I'm a cool kid now. <laughs> right. So obviously we are a revenue, we're a sales channel for them and, and we bring them sales. So they're very excited to work with us. The key is the right, we got to spend a lot of time with those warehouses up front to certify them. But at the same time, Make sure we're matching the right types of merchants with the things that they're good at doing. Right. 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 They have not only the right locations, but also the right mix. Right. Like some of our warehouses are really good at kidding. Right. Right. And and okay, so great. We're we're going to um like those are the right matches. They'll do a lot of special projects for people and and things like that. Some folks are are really good at smalls and you know, might put the nutraceutical folks there and the health right. and beauty products. So the matching you cold, processes. You, you mentioned cold chain too. So you guys are doing cold chain across the nation? So we, we've got relationships with cold chain warehouse providers and we don't have a lot of clients in that because the hard thing there is the packaging, right? Mm -hmm. The packaging is so expensive to get it right. And then the other part is a lot of times you really can't ship that stuff after Wednesday because mm -hmm. if that gets stuck in a in a warehouse, in a facility over the weekend, it doesn't matter how good your package. So you got to be the cost on that. You got to be really prepared as a merchant and you got to have some great margins because the cost on that is really steep. Somebody was, if you go in Ben and Jerry's and look at what it costs to, to buy, to ship their ice cream. Now I think the, the shipping costs of that getting, <laughs> getting Ben and Jerry's sent to you. First off, they got to sell at least five, 10 of them, right? You have to, right. and then on, and and then the most likely the shipping cost more than the product, and <laughs> so you're going to have to raise the price of the product, and no one wants to get thirty dollars worth of ice cream for sixty dollars, so you have to say the ice cream costs sixty dollars and, and the shipping right. costs thirty dollars. So it's a big right. trick bag there. So let's switch gears a little bit, if you don't mind. So you've not. been very you've been super successful both as an entrepreneur and as a, a corporate guy in big companies small companies and now <laughs> your latest iteration so mm -hmm. you've had successes you've had failures so how, how oh, do yeah. you deal with those failures better than i used to right <laughs> it's, it's funny i've done this one will be my sixth right so the previous five had three three great ones and two that i didn't even bother talking about right because but, but they took a lot of energy and a lot of effort and it was just, the timing wasn't good. The, there's all kinds of reasons that, you know, that's why it's so hard to do it. Right. And anyone who does it and has great outcomes every time, like, I just don't know those people. Right. We all have failures along the way. The keys are for me, and they're just things I learned along the way. Like the first one was a business that I'll just let go to. I just, I you you always fight, right? And you're and, and then the trade out is like, when do I give up? And it's not giving up. It's just when do I got to pivot and make a better decision? And I just I let the first the, the first failure go on too long. And and the lessons I learned from that were I always kind of thought I could just outwork things, but in right. some capacity, yeah, in some capacity, right? We just the numbers were just coming back, and and we tried to pivot. And um, a lot of times when you're trying to pivot or do an extension of your business or finding a better, a different use case, it's too late. So you've got to be on the front foot early and, and really paying it like up, up early and, and up on the wheel early, paying attention to that. And then the other piece is keep, you got to keep that payroll in line. That is your biggest cost 
It's the one that's the hardest to move the needle on and shed. You got to invest for growth, but you got to be really mindful of your payroll because that's the fixed cost that's going to get you. But as far as dealing with failure, um, I'm terrible at it. Um, it's not, it's, I go into these moves, I go into depression. I mean, it's just, it's a bad scene. I'm guessing you were, as an athlete, you were very competitive and yeah. you probably brought that to your career, which is great, except, uh, you're used to winning and I suspect you don't enjoy the losing part very much. <laughs> yeah. But the reality of it is you lose more than you win. Like you think about successful salespeople, like your best salespeople close 15 to 20% of their deals, which means they lose 80% of the time. Like you better have some thick skin and feel pretty good about yourself to sign up for a career where 80% of your time is spent losing. Right. It, well, it's like being, it's like batting, right? If you, if you right. hit 300, you're fantastic. You're an all of right? You're going all of right. 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 And, and, and you hit 150 and you're cut. <laughs> yeah. But to specifically answer your question, there, there are two things that I've found to be really helpful in, in dealing with setbacks. Number one, I surround myself with a good network of people that are outside of my company. Right. So I have mentors, I have quasi advisors, I have friends that I've helped out and they've helped me so that I can talk to them about my business or about my challenges and know that I'm going to get a straightforward, non politically motivated, non financially motivated. Like I have no skin in the game here, Steve, other than I'm going to give you some, some good. You need people in your life who can give you that kind of feedback right. that don't have a vested interest in the outcome in terms of how, how it ends up, right? You're just, you're just getting, you've got it. And, and they're on team Steve. <laughs> yeah. 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 But team Steve to the point where if it doesn't work out, it, I'm going to give you the straight, you've got to, you've got to have a network of people like that or else you have an echo chamber and an echo chamber is right. going to take you down a bad path. So surrounding yourself with folks like that, help me deal with it. And then, then, then candidly, it's, it's, it's the ability to take what you need from that and then move forward and not talk about it. You ever have these people in your life that talk about the guy or gal who quit three months ago and you're still cleaning up their mess. Well, guess what? They've been gone for three months. Like nobody cares, right? Like stop talking about it. Like that was a fine, that was a fine talk track. Like a week, okay, like one week, and that's it. And you got to move forward, and cause, yeah, because and and that's the piece with our failures and my failures, and 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 it's just like I've just learned I can't dwell on it that long. You got to go, and you got to move on, and you got to force yourself not to even think about it, and, and not not to talk about it. What Maya Angelou has this great quote, like, "What is it? Hope and fear can't exist in the same mind, right?" right. And because one's gonna, I, I butchered it. No, no, we, we we know what you mean. Right. It's it's interesting because I do interview a lot of successful people, founders, chief executives, different people, and and if you talk to them, they will always talk about more of their failures, like oh this failure that that, but oh, yeah. but they failed their way to the top, right? And every step well, of the way was it. like yeah, you learn from it and you endure it, and it sounds like you have. Uh, you mentioned mentors. I always say people say, "Oh, I want a mentor. I want a mentor." And I, I've been telling a lot of young people, you know, when you when if, if I have someone who's to reach out and say, "Steve, I want you to be my mentor. I want you to meet with me once per quarter," you might say right. yes, but it, it, more likely you say, you know, "Just keep it casual. I'm, I'm happy to give you right. some advice." And so when you say mentors, these aren't formal. These are just some informal. Where call my old boss, call my old friend, call an yeah. investor. It, yeah, it's 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 they're informal. I have one very formal one. But most of them are informal. But the key to that is it can't be a one-way street. Like you have got, and this is for anyone young in your career, this is the lesson you got to learn. You got to make deposits as much as you make withdrawals, right? And you got to make social deposits. You got to make educate. You got to make these deposits and these relationships so that you can make some withdrawals. Because in a banking relationship, if you're withdrawn, I mean, if you're overdrawn, right, then they just right. shut you out and send you fees. In relationships, if you're overdrawn, you're just exhausting to people. And right. they don't they don't want to help you and they start ducking you and you don't get your phone calls returned because you, you're not making the same level of deposit into this relationship as you're making withdrawals right. and you're overdrawn. And with the ease of LinkedIn and the ease of making these connections, 
there's a there's a lot of overdrawn accounts out there. <laughs> so if if you if you want to have true advisors and mentors out there and people that you can trust, you need to invest as well and give back. And and it could right. be it might not be in advice, it just might be in things that you can do or help them out with certain things. And and people just forget that. They it, and that's the hard, <laughs> right. that's the overdrawn you learn part. Those maybe people, you gotta learn they're that. They're exhausting. Yeah. You know, and I throw this out there. A lot of people reach out to me saying, I'm in logistics and I want to sell more. We have this operation. They'll always send me messages, and particularly young people. And I always say, yeah, I, I said, generally speaking, you can reach me anytime after 5. I don't schedule meetings after 5. Call me. Here's my mobile. Text me. Mm-hmm. Call me. That that weeds out about uh, 90%. And I, and I don't say that to be nasty, like I'm not unwilling mm-hmm. to help. But if you're not willing to work past 5 p.m. to learn, then I'm not willing to invest either. Because I, right. what I've learned is I, I spend some time. I, I send you an email, and and you didn't care enough. You cared that one day <laughs> that right. you sent me a message. So right. anyway, we didn't talk about this, but you guys are a UPS company, but you you mm-hmm. operate independently, and then yep. report back up. So I no doubt you guys are shipping sure. via UPS, right? Absolutely, absolutely. We ship with the best. So, I mean, yeah, we ship with the best. So, so yes. that's a big advantage because I, I'll just throw this out there. I potentially could reach out to UPS and they might say, that is not a great fit for us right now. You're going to get a little higher price. I'm going to get a better price if I go through you, right? I mean, most, most likely, or at well, least you well, get a better price. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So we, so we are a separate company, right? We, we have our own board and things like that, but we absolutely ship UPS and certainly we enjoy some family discounting there, but we don't just sell shipping, right? Like you, like I don't, we don't sell rates. Like the cost right. that you would get from us would be inclusive of your pick, your pack and right, your right. ship, but your overall economics are going to be better because look, I'm negotiating a better deal with these three PLs than you're going to negotiate on your own because I've aggregated you with 10 other merchants. So right. you, know, you might do 100 a day. I've, I've got you bundled with folks at 2,000 a day, right? And, and I think one of the things that somebody just did on my podcast, I had Emma Cosgrove, and she said that uh, mm-hmm. UPS just said, hey, not all this e-commerce business is perfect. So we're right. going to be we're going to do what's right for our shareholders. We're going to do what's right for us. We're not just going to say yes to everything. And it's interesting. This logistics is a weird business this way. If you go to a restaurant and sit down and say, I'd like to eat, they don't ever say, we're not sure you're the kind of customer we want right now. <laughs> you would never oh, hear right. that. But right now right. when you say, I need a truck or I need warehouse space, there's people saying thanks, but no thanks. And it's <laughs> it, it, it's shocking because I, I get these phone calls from people saying, no one will talk to me. And I was like, mm-hmm. hey, you're a new start. You're a new startup and you want you don't know what you don't know. And you want somebody to commit to you. Well, guess what? People are busy with e-commerce right now. So Right. Well, the, to the difference now is, I'll use your restaurant example. Right. They're probably not going to say to you, uh, we don't know. But if that restaurant has a thousand people lined up and they've only got 10 hamburgers and all thousand people want those 10 hamburgers, I assure you the cost of those 10 hamburgers are going to be a lot more than within what they were when they had a thousand people, when they had yeah. 10 people lined up and they had a thousand hamburgers. To sell. Right. And, and I think that you see that across all the supply chain. It's why Right. It's why LTL costs are almost, you know, almost double what they were a couple of years ago. Pallets are like three X, right? Containers are so expensive. The whole, and you've got capacity issues. I mean, you know, there's only so much capacity in these networks. (laughs) So you've got to optimize what's in those networks to to drive the right outcomes and also drive the, the best service. Right. Right. So if you don't mind, Steve, I know you're a busy man. So tell us the sweet spot for where to go. Who do you, who do you guys serve? Who's the, who's the sweet spot for you guys and what value do you guys bring to that party? Yeah. So the, our typical client is uh, a client that does between say 5 million and $200 million a year in gross merchandise sales. Right. So, you know, the, the five to 200, that's, and that's typically what you would consider your fat middle market, right? Yep. And, and so that's typically the, the the size of the company. They're typically shipping anywhere between, say, 25 to 750 parcels a day. It could be a combination of small package, small package in LTL. Truck. I mean, it doesn't matter. Like we're, B- we're set BD, up. BD, BD. BD, right. <laughs> and then they're they're trying to use their supply chain 
as a strategic asset, right? right. They're, they're, think, they're thinking about their supply chain, not just how do I get packages delivered in two days or less, but they're also like thinking about how do I turn my supply chain into a variable cost model, right? right. Not a fixed cost model. How so what do, do you I mean, think what, what, what do you mean by that? Could you explain that? Well, right. Like, so if you think about the way your supply chain works now, if you, you know, you've, you've got fixed warehouse costs that you got to, mm -hmm. you know, amortize over against all of your shipments or your labor is fixed, right? Right. All of all those are fixed costs. In our model, it's on demand. So if you ship 10 packages today, Joe, that's all you I pay, pay for. for ten, <laughs> pay for 10 packages. You pay for the labor to pick and pack those 10 packages, right? So if those people sit around and do nothing the rest of the day, that's on me, right? right? That's not on you. You don't have to fund that, right? You're funding your 10, right? So that keeps it variable. It keeps it as a variable model. You're not paying the whole, you're only paying storage on the pallets locations that you take, right? You're paying for the labor that you use. You're paying for the shipping that you use. And if it's 10, you pay for 10. If it's a hundred, you pay for a hundred, not, not more, not less. So right. it's a variable cost model, which stays in line with your sales, right? And also right. will trigger up or trigger down based on your spikes. Like when you think about the pandemic, I think about some of our customers who grew 700% because they were on the right side of the pandemic in terms of what right. they sold. And then I had some customers who were on the wrong side of the pandemic oh, yeah. based on what they were offering. And they dropped, imagine, I imagine, I think about those people in a fixed cost model, you know, where they're eating all those costs and their sales are falling through the floor. Like right. that's really, really tough, right? In our model, all they were paying for was storage. Right. You know, it's interesting to me also, I'll just say this as a small business owner myself. If if you were to tell me, you know, 10 years ago, oh yeah, you can partner with UPS for your supply right. chain. That seems like a ridiculous thing to do. I would go, that, they don't partner. They pick up my parcels. That's not a partner. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm happy for them to pick up my parcels. Right. But for them to say, yes, I will manage that whole process and you know they're world-class. That yeah. is a different, that is different. And not every warehouse is created equal. I've been to a lot of warehouses. There's there's a warehouse by my house that calls me once a year and they say, I hope they don't listen. But they always call and say, we want to grow our sales. And I said, do you have it WMS yet? And they go, no, we need more sales. And I was like, no one <laughs> work with you do you get a WMS. There's lots of companies that don't even have a WMS. And that is... Yeah. That that is probably the bare minimum. And I, I'm sure that's an insult to UPS. They're like, of course we created WMS. <laughs> so. Well, what's interesting about that? That's so when Where to Go was first getting founded, the the original name was called Wherevana because the model was like Carvana. And mm -hmm. you know, this is this is how you pivot ideas. And look, you got to be in business to be in business. So a lot of times, once you're in business, you realize the business you're in is not the business you thought you were going to be in. Like you got to, and typically your first customers are not your ICP. Your first customers are, tip, are ideal client profile. Your first customers are usually, Joe, the, the first people who have the biggest problems because no one else can solve them or they're your friends, right? So <laughs> it's not your ICP. But the original thinking on the business was we'd partner with warehouses and one of the reasons we did a WMS system was the thinking was those warehouses wouldn't have WMS systems and we could create a SaaS revenue model. Well, guess what? You get in business and you realize the warehouses who actually have the capabilities and the, the capacity to handle the type of volume that you're bringing them already have a WMS system, right? So right. they don't need yours. You need to be thinking about how to integrate with theirs because they've optimized it right. based on their workflow. So, right. so that's like an example of how the business pivots from right. the business you thought you were going to be into the business that you actually are in. Yeah, this is this this podcast uh, started as my doing sales strategy and digital marketing for people. <laughs> right. So, right. And then it became a podcast. So, well, anyway, Steve, this is fantastic. But before we wrap this bad boy up, you speaking at any conferences or attending any conferences, anything that uh, we should know about where to go? Well, it's a great. Thanks for asking. Uh, Yesterday, I spoke at the Coyote Logistics Summit. Oh, um, nice. So, That's right. So, UPS bought Coyote Logistics a number of years yeah. ago, right? Yeah. So Coyote had an amazing summit for the last two days. It's on demand. So you can actually go listen to it on demand. But I was 
fortunate to be on their panel to talk about just the future of supply chain and what to think about for peak and where humans and technology come together. So I just wrapped that up. I'm speaking at my nephew's wedding this weekend. All right. So, Where's that at? Right, somewhere in Virginia. <laughs> but <laughs> but no, I I don't I don't have any speaking engagements coming up. I'm happy to be on your podcast. <laughs> but I would say this, the uh be on the lookout for the where to go holiday um, survey, which will give you some great insights around how merchants are thinking about the holidays. And I'll give you three quick tips on that. Real yeah, quick. yeah, One please do. Go early, right? So uh, you got inventory, you got you got record inventory already in this country. You got record low avail- uh, warehouse availability, and you've got record inventory coming into this country. So right. you have an interesting inventory set up. You got delayed inventory coming in and people are very much concerned about having inventory here for holiday sales. So you're not going to see it discounted as deeply as it was. And you got to go early. And consumers know that because a lot of them got late gifts last year. And you'll see this shift in consumer behavior. So start early, like now. You're not going to see discounts as deep as they were previously because you got inventory challenges. And the discounting that you are going to see it's going to be like buy one, get one. And the get one is going to be part of that inventory that's already sitting in this country and, and leftover. So go early, fence your inventory, and you're not going to see as deep a discounts right now. And if you've got inventory sitting on the coasts, talk to your provider about moving it to the center of the country where you can pay less storage rates and free up your capacity by the ports because that's where you're going to need it. Right. Right. And, you know, speak to the SKU count. I, I, one of the things that's coming up a lot lately is if, uh, let's just say somebody has one, 100 SKUs and they say, yeah, but the, the top 12 is where I make 80% of my money. Yep. I know I just talked to the Flexport guys this morning. They said that's the stuff that you got to get into the country. The other stuff yeah. you can go by boat. Some of it might have to come by air and it's going to be at a premium, but worse. The worst thing in the world isn't paying extra for logistics. The worst thing in the world is empty shelves or not being able to do the fulfillment when somebody wants to buy. No doubt about it. So no are you seeing reduction in SKU counts in your business? Great question. Yes and no. A lot of our clients don't have a ton of SKU counts. Like we don't do a lot of apparel. That's good. <laughs> right? We don't, we don't do a lot of apparel. Apparel is where you see a lot of SKU counts. Like our average merchant has like, you know, 120, 140 SKUs, not right. 10,000. Right. So, and, and I'm assuming that's another thing you guys help them with is saying, hey, guys, this this slow moving stuff, you're paying a lot of money for it to sit here. Do you right. really need do you really need that? Mag- well, I heard somebody before talk about a magenta and they said, we've never sold a magenta anything that made money. Right. Why are we still selling magenta? <laughs> right. So- yeah, that 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 needs to be in deep storage in Lawrence, Kansas, right? Not 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 sitting in a prime location in Ontario, California, or anyone near the ports, right? Like those are the things, and we help our clients do that. Like, hey, the turns on these things are like once a year. The turns on these are, you know, eight times a year. Like, let let's help let's help slot these for you because the warehouses don't want. They don't, I mean, warehouses are fine getting storage revenue, but like you don't want storage revenue happening in a place where you've got a shortage of capacity, right. I mean, availability, and you got a labor force that needs to work. Like you need turning inventory. Right. Yeah. And it's, that, that's one of the things I've heard about Amazon also is that they, they, they said, look, this isn't, we'll do the storage, but that's not what we really want to do. We want to right. bring stuff in and move it. <laughs> We're not in the storage sure. business. As you said, get that to the get that to Lawrence, Kansas. So what I'll do, Steve, I'm going to put a link to your LinkedIn profile, if you don't mind. And then sure. if, if, if I can, we'll get a, a link to where to go. We'll put all that in the show notes. And I'll, if your people can get it to me, I will also put the uh, you on the Coyote panel talking about okay. uh, what where to go does and talking about this upcoming holiday season, among other things. That would be great. We look. I will have my team send it. But it was great talking to you, Joe. Thanks yeah, for having me. Yeah, I really today. appreciate you taking the time. You've got an interesting guy, an interesting career. I've been lucky. I've been lucky. <laughs> well, that's one. That that's one thing. With every once in a while on this podcast, we say, were, "Were you lucky or good?" I suspect you were lucky because of who you were born to and some of the attitudes that you developed as a young person. But you had to be good along the way. <laughs> 
I was good enough to surround myself with good people. And, and the only thing I would take personal credit, I did, I have challenge, I did challenge the status quo from a very early age and, and challenging the status quo. What you learn is, uh, there's, uh, you got to do that with some gravitas and some detente. And you learn that as you get older. <laughs> yeah, you got, yeah. But challenging the status quo, just, I always operated under this model. I never believed I was better than anybody in doing something. And once I figured out I didn't have to outwork everybody, maybe another solution was to figure out a different way to do it. That's when things changed for me, which was, hey, I don't know if I'm ever going to be better than that, that person, but if I, could, if I could work hard, I could try to outwork them, but I got to find a different way to do it. And that's where I spent a lot of my career. And I think that's why I was drawn to digital and drawn to what I'm doing now is just finding a different way to solve problems for people. And being passionate about it. so Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I can't help but notice that you really care what you're doing. You love what you do, which is important. That's what I always say. Right. Whenever I hear somebody talk about um, retiring, I always go, well, when I'm tired or in a, uninspired or sick, <laughs> that's when I'm going right. to leave. <laughs> right. And so, anyway, anyway, enough of my blather. Thank you so much. And again, I'll put those links in the show notes. And I really do appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate it. And Joe, if there's anything we can do for you, man, or anything I can ever help you out with, don't hesitate to reach out. Okay? <laughs> thank you so much. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.